Well, I love that song. It is all about running away from the things that you have done and running towards something else. And we're going to talk about why we did that in a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, uh, some of you know, before I moved to the Bay Area almost 15 years ago, uh, I was a pastor at a church in Las Vegas. And when we lived in Vegas, one of the things that I, I kind of found fun to do every once in a while was drive out to Lake Mead, see Lake Mead. Uh, uh, this is a picture of Lake Mead in 2004 when I first moved to Vegas, and uh, people would tell me when I would look at it uh, that, that we were in the middle of a drought at the time and that it was lower than usual and I would look at the lake and and I would see the water line like you can see right there and I would go oh my gosh yes we are and that is not good we're in the desert where are we gonna get our water well uh, let me show you a picture of what it stands at today in 2022 Can we put that up yeah, quite a bit different. And of course, this has lots of people worried because uh, Lake Mead provides water to Arizona and Nevada and some of Mexico and California, drinking water for nearly 20 million people and then water for large areas of farmland, and it's a problem. If you, if you look at the, the water level history from 1943 until now, it has gotten low a few times. It has never gotten this low. And the reason that I bring it up is because it is getting this low, things are starting to be found that once were hidden, uh, like this Second World War era boat that began to just jut out of the water. That used to be 200 feet deep, stuck at the bottom. Now it's totally visible. Uh, or this speedboat, that may be my favorite picture, that sank and is pointing straight up now and it's uncovered. Or a crashed B-29 plane that everybody knew was there in the lake, but it was so far below the surface, light never reached it. Now you can scuba to the plane. Or the remnants of an entire town called St. Thomas that settlers would stop at as they headed west, but the town got wiped away when the Hoover Dam was put in and Lake Mead expanded. All sorts of things being found in Lake Mead but one of the more problematic things, maybe you've seen this on the news, they found as the water level has dropped that there are skeletons, human skeletons. You're looking at the screens. I'm not gonna put pictures up. They're pretty gross. Um, as of August, uh, they have found five so far this year, uh, including one that's been underwater since the 1980s, uh, one that's a shooting victim from the 1970s, and one that was discovered by boaters when they opened up a barrel that they came across, it had clearly been submerged for a long time. Now, with the history of Las Vegas and the mob, uh, it is not surprising that people are finding these things at the bottom of Lake Mead. There's always been that rumor. I remember when I lived there. Uh, but what was just rumor is now turning into fact. And uh, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department have publicly said there's a good chance we're going to find lots more which is never a good sign when the police know that there are more bodies at the bottom. It's kind of creepy, uh, kind of creepy to know that at the bottom of the lake you've been swimming in, uh, there are those things floating around. Uh, also, I should say, um, if you are worried about drinking that water, uh, the good news is the part of California that gets Lake Mead water is Los Angeles and San Diego. So, uh, but I think it just goes to say, that which is hidden will eventually be found. Nothing stays hidden forever. Um, this week, I read about a Sicilian man who was part of the Sicilian Mafia, and he had been convicted of murder in Italy. Uh, was given a life sentence in 2001, but he escaped from an Italian jail in 2002, and no one knew where he was. Nobody could find this guy. He was in hiding for 19 years until, 
until last December, in a small town in Spain, a Google Street View car. Do you all know what those cars are with the cameras on them that drive down the street? Uh, it was doing what it does, taking pictures of the streets, and it snapped a picture of two men outside of this market, and the Italian police found this on the internet, and they confirmed that it was the criminal they were looking for. It was now 61 years old. He was living as a chef in this small town. And as they arrested them, uh, him, he said, how did you find me? I have not even phoned my family back in Italy in 10 years. But even that is not enough to stay hidden in a world where there are cameras driving down every single street, even in minor cities. Nothing, no one stays hidden forever. Well, I'm going to guess that none of you have dropped a body in Lake Mead uh, or our mafia bosses on the lam. But I, I wonder if there is something in each of us that feels like it's hiding. What I mean by that is you, you, you look at the things that you have done in this life, maybe even the things you currently do, and you've got a few of them you hope that no one ever finds out about. Things you've done that were wrong or hurtful, maybe things you've said that were wrong or hurtful. Betrayals that you hope nobody ever finds out about. Uh, maybe some things that are not legal. Maybe some things that are legal but are still not right things that you're embarrassed by that you did in your youth, uh, things you're embarrassed by that you did last week. We all look at things we've done in our lives, and some of us have a few, some of us have a pretty good amount we hope that no one ever finds out about. And that part of us is the part that we hide. Now, I am not going to have you find someone in the room and share your deepest, darkest secret with them this morning that you've been hiding, but, but I bring it up today because I, I wonder if not only do we hope that no person ever finds out about these things, I wonder if somewhere in us we would hope to hide these things from the God of the universe. Partly because he loves us so much. Uh, I should say, this is a funny concept to me that we'd hide these things from God. Uh, partly because he loves us so much uh, the, 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 why we would try to hide, he offers forgiveness and acceptance for these things that we're trying to hide. We talked about that a lot around here over the last few months. It's, it's funny to me that we would hide from a God who wants to give us forgiveness, but it's also funny to me that we would hide from a God of the universe who knows. He knows what we've done. He knows what we do. He knows that we're trying to hide while we're hiding, and yet we do. Some of us avoid God. Uh, that's way, uh, we, we avoid prayer, we avoid reading the Bible, we avoid getting any further into the whole church thing because any of that might put me in a moment where the things that I'm hiding actually might have to come up with him or with somebody else. Some of us, we hide in plain sight. What I mean is we, we make a show for God and for others that we've got it together, there's no mess in our lives and, and we might even do a lot of really good things and they are a smokescreen. If I make my conversation with God about this stuff, then I don't have to talk with him about this stuff. I wonder if, if many of us, even as we surround ourselves with the things of God, are hiding something from him. Some part of our life from him that we don't want to talk about for whatever reason. Maybe because we're embarrassed. Maybe because if we talk about it with him, we'll have to change and we don't want to change. Maybe because we just want to forget it, pretend it never happened, move on, I don't know. But there is a problem with this hiding. And the problem with it is that it leaves you unknown. 
Can I tell you the most freeing feeling in the world is for you to be known and know that you are not hiding. There is liberty that comes with that. It's like having been chained up for a long time and being set free. Truth is, your heart cries out to be known. Your soul, and as much as you might not think that you want to be known, your soul, your very soul, longs for it. And, and, and actually, can I tell you what's behind that? Your soul longs to feel loved. But not just the kind of love that anybody can give you. Your soul longs to feel love from somebody who actually knows you. There are plenty of people in this world who love you but don't really know you. That's why they find it so easy to love you. But you have a need to be loved by somebody who knows you and even knowing you still loves you. And see, the problem with hiding is it leaves us living unknown. And the problem with living unknown is it leaves us feeling unloved. Now, we know the truth. We've talked about it a lot the last few months. You are known by God. You are loved. But as long as you keep hiding, what you're missing out on is feeling known and loved. Living as if you are known and loved. And that is a better life than the one that you have now. That is what you're looking for. But as long as you stay in hiding, you don't get that. And we want to help you with that today. And we want to do it by showing you Genesis 3, the next part of Genesis, that a part that involves these two people, Adam and Eve. As we continue this series, we're going to look at a few lessons that God has for us in Genesis 3, both that very much relate to running from what you've done and hiding. And their lessons, they are lessons we often overlook. Why? Because we so often are asking the wrong questions of Genesis. So often that we don't even catch the right lessons. As I said last week, our commitment this series is to point out the wrong questions we've been asking so we can steer you toward the right lessons God has intended. And, and today, in order to find them, I just want to read you a lot of the story as we see it in Genesis 3, all right? And it starts in verse 1. Take a look on the screens and you can follow along. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Okay, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, time out. There are many trees in the garden, but two special ones, one called the tree of life. And this is important. We're gonna come back to this in a minute. So I want you to turn to somebody next to you and just simply say tree of life. I wanna make sure it's in your head. Tree of life. There's one called the tree of life. And then there's one called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has told Adam and Eve, if you eat from this second tree, the one that's not the tree of life, you will die. But the story goes that Eve is tempted by this really good looking fruit and she took a piece and she ate it and then Adam did as well. And the moment they eat, their eyes are opened to see that they are naked. And so they use fig leaves to cover their, their nakedness. And, and then in verse eight we read, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid 
from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you, he answered, uh, sorry, where are you? And he answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve experience something that causes them to run and hide, and we're gonna talk about what that is later. But God asks, did you eat fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Now, when God asks this question, Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent. And the story goes in verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard their way to the, this is your part, we already said this once, to the what? Tree of life. Okay, now that is Genesis 3. Now, I don't know about you, lots of questions. Lots of questions that come to the mind of people like you and me living in 2022 as we read them. And as I said before, lots of them are wrong questions. Let me put them up. Were Adam and Eve real people? Was the garden a real place? Why put a tree in a garden that grows fruit if no one's meant to eat it? Anybody else asked that question before? Can snakes talk? And if so, why don't we see that more today? What kind of fruit was this? Because I like apples, and if it's apples, I don't know how I feel about that, but if it's plums, go for it. Who wants to eat those anyway? <laughs> if there were two people to start with, and they had children, how did those people, who did they sleep with to populate the earth? Did they sleep with their mom and dad? Did they sleep with unnamed sisters and brothers? Lots of questions about who slept with who that comes out of Genesis. All of those are wrong questions about Genesis 3 and about Genesis 4 eventually. And, and let me say again what I said last week. If you weren't here, I hope you can go back and watch that on YouTube. The reason those are wrong questions, this is not a modern textbook. Genesis was never written or meant to answer those questions that we would be asking thousands of years later. What is Genesis? It is an ancient story told by ancient people with ancient understandings. And their goal was not to answer those questions. And what I said last week, if you were to try to make this story answer questions it was never meant to answer, you're gonna end up with lots of bad answers and you will miss right lessons. Real quick, I had somebody ask me, Chris, I get that there are right lessons, but surely it's one or the other. It's either real or it is myth. Okay, that's a fair question, right, Chris? Well, let's assume for a second that that is fair, all right? And let's assume this half of the room right here believes that this is historical as it is written, and this half right here believes that it's figurative, that it's a metaphor of some sort, and, 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 and by the way, that is probably very likely that this room, uh, this church is split on this. Uh, as we say around here very often at Crosswinds, we can agree to disagree on many things, even parts of our faith and what we believe about portions of the Bible. Let's say that we all disagree. What are we gonna do? We're gonna have a rumble? We're gonna fight it out together? No, we're, we're, we're gonna hear each other out. Uh, likely, when we're done listening to the other person who disagrees with us, we're gonna go, I don't know, I don't see it. And then what we're gonna say is, Anyway, what's the lesson behind Genesis 3 anyway? So why don't we just skip to that part since that's why they wrote it, the lesson. Because I promise you the goal of Genesis 3 was not to answer those questions or, or even talk about whether it's historic or whether it's metaphor. What was their goal? Some right lessons, so let's get to those. 
Last week, when I explained the when for the book of Genesis, I explained that it was likely written sometime shortly after 539 BC. If you weren't here, we talked a lot about that, and we said that's a very special date because uh, this is when God's people were set free from exile in Babylon and allowed to return home to Judah and to Jerusalem. Very important date. Remember what we talked about, we said 50 to 70 years earlier, the people had been captured. Their city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed. The temple was in ruins. Uh, This place that was like their Washington, D.C. was just smithereens. It was chaos and confusion. Lots of lives lost. And the people were carried off 900 miles to Babylon, where they were far away from home for many, many years. When we say many years, multiple generations of children, grandchildren, born in Babylon, away from home, but in 539 BC, set free to go home. And their goal in writing Genesis 1 and 2, what we talked about last week, was to say, kids, grandkids, I know that your lives have been chaos. The entire time you've been alive has been chaos. But guess what? God is a chaos tamer. So what is the goal of Genesis 3, what we just read? The goal in Genesis 3, the why this was written, was to explain how they ended up in exile in the first place. How did we end up in Babylon in the first place? And the second goal, to tell them how to prevent it from happening again. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is kind of important, and this is where the hiding thing starts to come from. Um, As we read the Genesis 3 story that we just looked at, something really funny happens, something I think is incredibly weird. Uh, Even as I told you kind of a a version of it before, you probably caught this, uh, something that does not make sense on the surface. God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat from this tree, you will die, and what happens? They don't die. Anybody else catch that? Instead, they get kicked out of the garden. Now, lots of people point that out as a problem with Genesis, that this is inconsistent. Like, if you were writing Genesis, why would you include this line about if you eat fruit from this tree, you'll die, and then not kill off the main characters when they do? But actually, can I tell you, this is one of the right lessons in Genesis. But to see this lesson, you've got to know that death in this story, in death in their ancient world, meant something very different than we're thinking of it right now. There's actually a double meaning to this. The first has to do with that other tree that they did not eat from when they got in trouble, the tree of life, tree of life. Remember, there were two trees, one that you're not supposed to eat from and the other one, and what is, what is the tree of life? It is a tree that keeps them from dying. See, in this story, they are immortal. Well, how does the story end? The story ends with them being banished from the garden where the tree of life exists. Look again at verse 24. We already read it once, but I want you to read it again knowing what you know now. After he drove the man out, God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep them from being able to go back to the tree of life. And in a way... Adam and Eve die because they are evicted from this paradise where they would have been able to keep eating fruit that gives them immortality. 
So when God tells them, if you eat of this, you will die, one thing that it means is, you will no longer be immortal. What God means by death is, I am going to restrict you from the tree of life. But death has a a second meaning in this story, another meaning. Death is exile from paradise and the God who gave us life. All right, can I show you something really cool? I never put two and two together on this until like very recently. Uh, This goes back to the 539 BC stuff and that Babylonian exile that had been taking place. There was this guy during the Babylonian exile that we've been talking about the last few weeks. There was this guy while God's people were in exile named Ezekiel. He and his wife uh, were also captive in Babylon like everybody else, but Ezekiel was a prophet. Like God had chosen him to deliver messages to God's people on his behalf while they were held captive. And one day, while they're in Babylon, God gives Ezekiel a vision, and this vision, it becomes famous to the people of that time, and it's a vision we still talk about today. Uh, It is in Ezekiel 37, and here is a little bit of the vision. It says, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. This is a vision of death. Death. It keeps going. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And God asked me, son of man, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I said, I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. And you say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, while God's people were in exile in Babylon, God's prophet Ezekiel comes to them and he says, God gave me a vision and this exile that you are in, that I am in, that we're in right now, it is death. Like God told me the perfect image to explain what has happened to us and and, and how we have gotten and, and what we are doing now as we sit in Babylon. The image is bones and bodies and corpses, almost as many as in Lake Mead. We, We are dead. And he says, what you need to now understand, folks, is that God's people, we should be equating our exile to death. It is as if we are without God, and they did. They, they felt like God turned their back, uh, his back on them, and that he walked away when they went to Babylon. Now, in a few minutes, I'm gonna tell you what God says to these bones, because that last line right there, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, it's about to get good. But back to Genesis. Knowing Genesis was put together sometime after 539 BC, and that the ancient story involves Adam and Eve exiled from the Garden of Eden, like you're no longer allowed to be in this paradise God created for you, invited you to rule with him. This is the other meaning behind death in the Adam and Eve story. We are exiled from paradise. We are exiled from our home with God, from Judah and Jerusalem, and this is a sort of death. And knowing that brings us to the why. Why write Genesis 3 in 539 BC? Why sit down and put this story to paper and make sure this part of the story gets told? Because kids, grandkids, as we get ready to go home to Jerusalem, rebuild, start over, we need to explain how we got exiled in the first place. We are no longer in paradise because we couldn't follow God's commands. 
The why is to say to their kids and their grandkids, and, 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 and even more than that, to say to their friends, to their peers, remember how we ended up here. This place far from home with chaos and confusion and the destruction of our city, we ended up here because we disobeyed God. The mess that we're in, that we're in together, we're in because we did not follow, we did not listen to, we did not obey God. And whether or not you believe Adam and Eve are historical figures or you believe they're, they're metaphor, Genesis 3 was not meant to answer that question. It was meant to say, we are all Adam. Every single person is Adam and Eve. And if there's any part of you that is not in paradise or feels like God is missing, he's turned his back on you, you are where you are. We are where we are because we didn't follow him. That is a right lesson from Genesis 3. Disobedience to God results in Death, when we say that, we mean you're not immortal and you've been exiled from paradise. And the lesson is learn to listen to God and follow in his ways and then and only then will you live. That is the point of Genesis 3. And this matters for me, this matters for you because there are all sorts of ways that we do not follow God's lead, that, that we disobey him. And this is meant to tell us, it's why you and I don't live in paradise. We screw things up. And like Adam and Eve, we run and we hide and we are not immortal. And short of God intervening, we're not gonna live forever. Now fortunately, this is just the beginning of the book. We know that by the time we get to Jesus, God does intervene, right? Although actually, actually, God doesn't make us wait until then for that intervention. Let me, let me point out one more thing in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve run and they hide. They feel shame over what they've done and who they are. That causes them to hide. And look at what God does. He goes and finds them. God, upon realizing that they have sinned, does not abandon them. He doesn't shut it all down and call his creation a failed experiment. They do not die right then and right there. God moves them outside of paradise. He exiles them. And what you're going to see in chapter 4, he stays with them. He leaves Eden with them for the purpose, for the purpose of always moving them back toward paradise. Always moving them back toward home. And, and this is another right lesson in Genesis 3. Our God searches for us and calls us out of hiding so that God searches for us, calls us out of hiding so that what? He can move us toward home. I wanna make sure we put that lesson up so that you see that. Can we get that up on the screen, guys in the booth? The next one? Our God searches for us and he calls us out of hiding. Now, remember Ezekiel. Let's go back to him. Ezekiel, who's in this valley, in this vision, full of dry bones. He's exiled in Babylon. Remember where we left off. God telling Ezekiel to speak to the dry bones, and here is what he tells Ezekiel to say. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. 
I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. Whoa. What he's saying is you are living in death, but just like I did when I created you, I will breathe life into you again. And then later, in the same chapter, God says, my people, I'm gonna open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel you've been exiled from, back to paradise, back to the garden. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. You may have been exiled because of what you've done, but I have never left you and I I'm going to bring you back. All right, is it any surprise that right around the time Ezekiel says those words to them, they turn around and they write Genesis down? In this thing that we've read, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, and the purpose is not to say whether talking snakes are real or, or, or who slept with who to populate the world. The purpose of writing it down is to say, our God has not abandoned us. Even in our disobedience, he's been searching for us, and we don't need to hide. And what you are gonna see in the rest of Genesis is that he is always working to move us back toward paradise. And, and I wonder today if that right lesson some of you need to hear. And as such, you are in hiding. You are hiding from God one way or another, you are hiding, you are running. There are some things you've done that have caused you to feel shame, and they've kept you from a God who wants to breathe life into you. They've kept you from the God who wants to find you and clothe you and rid you of the shame that you feel. They've kept you from a God who has never abandoned you. No matter what you're trying to hide, he knows you, he knows that stuff, and he still loves you, and is still with you, and he is constantly moving to bring you home. I, I want to ask you to listen to the words to this song as Kelly comes and sings this over us. Would you listen?
pray for us I just some listening to that song do you know how you come out of hiding 
you do what Adam does in that story. You just simply say, I'm here. I'm here, God. I'm over here. And here, here's what I've done. I know you know it anyway. And I am ready to let myself be known by you and feel loved. And, and maybe this week, there's a conversation that you and God need to have where you come out of hiding with whatever it is and you make yourself known. If you do, I'm telling you, God will breathe life into your dry bones. Challenge you to do that this week. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for being a God who goes searching for us when we are hiding, when we are running, who follows after us. Thank you for being a God who, even though you know us and all that is wrong, still love us. And God, I ask that you give us the courage this week to experience your grace, to be able to say, this is what I'm hiding, and to know, as we say it, we are known by you and loved by you. We pray these things in your name. All God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to. I'll be out at the Connection Corner afterwards. We'll see you next week.